Hello there and welcome to part three of this introduction to parotheology. Uh, so far we have taken this coin, uh, this parotheology coin, and we have looked at it in relation to a magic trick. And then last week we did uh, the secret of the lack. So just a brief summary and then we're going to get into uh, this week's stuff. Uh, in the first week I outlined how a magic trick uh, in a traditional sense has three parts. They have the pledge, the turn and the prestige. Uh, the pledge is when an object is presented, the turn is the disappearance of the object and the prestige is the return of the object. And I mentioned that the object that you get back while you think it's the same is very slightly different. And then I talked about uh, the pledge of uh, parotheology and really I think the pledge, the existential pledge, which is um, an object that uh, parotheology is going to make disappear and reappear in a different way. And that object is the sacred object, the object that has every perfection except one, existence. The object that we orient our lives around thinking that if only we could get it, everything would be fantastic, everything would be fixed. And kind of an object that we damage ourselves in the pursuit of, uh, that kind of like orients our desire. And I talked about the disappearance of that object and then the return of not the sacred object, but the sacred as a depth dimension in all objects. And that path of the pledge, the turn and the prestige, is basically the journey that um, I want to take people through in the practice of parotheology. And then last part, uh, we looked at the movement from the lack of the secret to the secret of the lack. And in a nutshell, the lack of the secret is the sense of separation we have from this sacred object, or what in psychoanalysis is sometimes called the lost object. Uh, so we feel that there's something lacking. We lack the secret, the secret to life, the secret to meaning. And then the movement from that to the point where we embrace the lack as a type of truth, as a type of reality that we have to tarry with, that we have to kind of find ourselves within. So that again, that movement connected to the, the, the lack of the sacred object, to that lack being something that's more central than the sacred object. So that brings us to part three. And in part three, we're going to be looking at the last part of the obverse of the coin, which is uh, the absurd cross and also a kind of parting curtain. So I'm going to kind of look at what that means. And what I want to do in this part and in part four is connect what we've looked at to parotheology in particular. We're going to look at how we lose this sacred object in our lives, uh, uh, what that process looks like. And then in the last two parts, we're going to get kind of a little bit more practical in talking about how do we actually find practices that can help us with that journey. Okay, so to start with, um, I want to begin, there's going to be three parts to today's seminar. Uh, in the first part, I just kind of want to outline the magic trick in relation to uh, the crucifixion of Christianity. So this is going to be very much focused on theology uh, and a certain reading of theology. So if you think of the magic trick, right, uh, often a magician uses a curtain 
right? So they'll have an audience and the audience is where all of the regular people enter in. You and I, we go into the, uh, the arena and we sit uh, in the chairs and we're facing the, the front of the stage. And the stage is where the magician is and the, the stage, the magician might have a curtain. And for one of these basic tricks, they'll take an object, they'll place it behind the curtain, right? And then hocus pocus, right? They will rip the curtain away and the object won't be there. We thought it was behind the curtain, but it's not behind the curtain, right? That's the turn, right? Before the prestige where the object is returned. Now, interestingly, you can see the Garden of Eden as being structured in a similar way, right? You have the garden where Adam and Eve are free to walk. You have uh, a prohibition, which uh, you can't penetrate. And then behind the prohibition, you have a sacred tree, right? And the idea, of course, is they break through the prohibition, they grab the fruit of the tree, and they eat it. They think it's gonna be wonderful, but it's a curse, it's a, it's a disaster. Now this, um, as we've already looked at, is also similar to the Oedipus complex, where uh, uh, Oedipus uh, has a prohibition, and behind the prohibition is this other who is his mother, unbeknownst to him, and he wants to return to the mother, breaking through the prohibition. So you have this kind of similar type of three-part structure, well, really two parts and something that gets in the middle, right? Something that splits. Now, the reason why I'm pointing this out is because the Temple of Jerusalem can be seen as also having this structure. You have the Court of Gentiles, where anybody can come and go, and they can. Uh, there's markets, and there's bartering, and there's exchange. And then you have a curtain, and behind the curtain you have the Holy of Holies, which is completely closed off to you. Only the priest at certain times of the year can go in, right? So you have this similar thing. And just like in the Garden of Eden, that behind the prohibition you have the, the piece of fruit that can make you whole and complete. Because remember the promise is you can eat that fruit and you will be like God, which traditionally means you will lack the lack, you will be whole and complete, right? So in the magician's uh, structure, you have the coin that's behind the curtain. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, you have the fruit this piece of fruit that will satisfy, that will give us knowledge of good and evil, that will make us lack the lack. Uh, in the story of Oedipus, you have a return to the mother other, a return to oceanic oneness. Um, and then in uh, the Temple of Jerusalem, you have the Holy of Holies, that behind that curtain is the absolute, is the divine, that is the house of um, uh, the, the, the ground of all being. Right? Um, so, thank you. Um, uh, in the crucifixion, you have the turn, right? So in the crucifixion, you have the moment in which the temple curtain rips apart, just like the magician rips apart the curtain. And then we see what's behind it. And the truly radical moment is the moment that we realize there is nothing in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is empty, right? So th there is also another reading. The confessional reading is, of course, God is not in that one location. God is now everywhere in the world. 
And that is going to connect with what I'm saying. But the first moment here is the turn. The absolute that we think is behind the curtain. The curtains rip. We get this insight that the thing we want more than anything else isn't there. It doesn't exist. There's nothing behind the curtain. Now, this could be seen as the nihilistic moment of Christianity, right? It's the moment in which you are shocked and freed from the thing that you are pursuing. It's not there. It doesn't exist. But it's also a moment of joy because it's a moment that frees you from this frenetic pursuit. We're always trying to get over loss, try to fill something, kind of fill the loss that we feel and overcome the oppositions that we experience in life. And now we're like, oh, there's nothing at the other side of that that will fix everything. So it's quite a, a, a crazy moment. And this is conversion. But a very simple level to enter into conversion is to identify with Christ crucified, to experience this fundamental unplugging from a certain form of desire, a kind of a, a drive-driven desire, right, where we are pursuing this lost object. So conversion is not a positive thing, as in it adds something to your life, it adds beliefs to your life, you start thinking differently or anything like that. It's a transformation in the way that we desire within the world, the way that we engage with the world. And it is a fundamental unplugging from the sacred object. All right. So in part one here, just want to isolate that connection because I'm trying to give, in a way, a, a hermeneutic key to understanding the biblical text, right? So you kind of need a key to, to kind of explore it and to look at it and to engage critically with it. And so what I'm kind of outlining here is a type of trajectory within the text, which starts with the human problem, the central problem of the sacred object, um, and all of the issues that arise from us trying to grasp it. Then um, in the incarnation, we have this idea of the absolute, becoming flesh and blood and dwelling amongst us and then dying on the cross and the ripping of the curtain is then the exposure of the loss of this object which then leads us into what can be called the epoch of the holy ghost which we'll be looking at in part four so there's this kind of trajectory in this journey i'm trying to say that conversion is where we identify with that experience of loss we feel it in our body. It's a radical unplugging. It's the experience of neither nor, right, that the Apostle Paul talks about. Okay, so um, how does that happen, right? And this is one of the interesting things about Christianity. This is one of the reasons why you know, Hegel was so interested in it, because you can see that connected with the ripping of the curtain is this claim this cry my god my god why have you forsaken me right so at the very moment at which christ cries out my god my god why have you forsaken me the the writers say that the temple curtain rips open and we see inside the holy of holies um we want to um, i want to kind of unpick why those two are interconnected but by the way before i move into that actually i want to talk just very briefly about forgiveness and grace right this is about forgiveness too. So with the sacred object, right, there is a sense of lack. There is a sense of something that we are missing that is driving us. We want to fill it, right? Now, one way of thinking about lack is in terms of debt, right? If you think about money, 
uh, there's two types of uh, not having money, right? There's just having no money, right? Your, your bank account's at zero. And then there's being in debt where your bank account is in negative. One is a nothing that is nothing in the sense of it's a nothingness. The other is a nothing that is something, right? Because debt uh, kind of controls us. It means we have to work in jobs we don't like. We're always having to pay people. We're getting phone calls and letters about paying that debt, right? So debt is a nothingness that is something. And there's always, there's two types of nothingnesses. Like there's the, the, the lack of speaking. If you're with someone you love and you're just not talking, or there's the not talking if you've just had an argument, right? The two are nothings, right? There's the not talking and there's the not talking. Or if you're in you know, Northern Ireland during the Troubles and you're not talking about your Protestant neighbors or your Catholic neighbors, that's very different from not talking about your Buddhist neighbors because there were very few Buddhists around that you would know of, right? So not talking about your Buddhist neighbors was kind of like a, it was an insignificant nothing, but not talking about your Protestant or Catholic neighbors, that not speaking spoke volumes, right? That said something about what's being covered over. Or one more example uh, from uh, Sartre, if you're waiting in a cafe uh, for somebody and they're late, that person is absent to everybody in the cafe, but the other people in the cafe don't experience that lack. You experience it because you're waiting for them. The rest of them don't feel it at all, right? So those are just different examples of how there's kind of can be a nothingness that is nothing and a nothingness that is something. Uh, even if you think about the nothingness that was before you were born and the nothingness uh, that awaits you, right? The nothingness before you're born is a nothing that's nothing, doesn't really cause much anxiety in your life, but the nothingness that's ahead can cause anxiety in your life, right? So in relation to the sacred object, uh, which we pursue, this gives us a sense of the lack of the secret, right? There's this lack and we want to fill that lack. We want to fill that lack with the object. Right? Pascal talks about the God-shaped hole within our lives, right? And we want to fill it in some way. Now, if I pay a debt, I do fill the lack, right? So if, I, if you, you owe money to somebody else and I pay it, uh, that means I take the, the, the lack and I fill it with money and I render it nothing. But if you owe me money and I forgive the debt, uh, I don't fill the nothingness. I render the nothingness nothing. You see what I mean? So to pay a debt is different than to forgive a debt. To pay a debt means to fill the lack. And you know, none of us these days can, most, most people in the world, in the modern world, can't pay their debts, right? You're, you're basically uh, enslaved to debt in some way, probably for all of your life, whether it's mortgages or car payments or credit cards. But forgiveness of debt, and the closest we have to that today is probably bankruptcy. Because uh, in bankruptcy, you can clear all your debt. Although in America, I think uh, your student loans aren't included in that, right? But um, to forgive a debt is not to pay it. It's to render the nothingness that is something into a nothingness that is nothing. And I saw this firsthand with some friends when they got into debt during the recession in so 2010. Uh, the, the lack of money, the debt wasn't, the pro, wasn't what caused them anxiety. It was all of the demands to pay the debt, right? Once they got into debt, 
they started getting visits from the banks, they started getting phone calls and letters, and the anxiety was in that voice that kept saying, you have a debt and you have to pay it. Now, if you remember in the story of the Garden of Eden, you have the serpent. The serpent is the one who says, you eat that fruit and you will be whole and complete, right? So the serpent is reminding you that you have a lack. By promising you can fill the lack, the serpent is saying you are lacking. And if only you move towards that sacred fruit, eat that fruit, then you will be able to lack the lack. You'll be able to fill the lack. You'll be able to pay the debt, right? And so we obey the serpent. But the, the, the challenge is not to obey the serpent, but to exorcise the serpent. And the exorcism of the serpent is grace and forgiveness, right? So forgiveness is the feeling that the nothingness that you feel is rendered nothing, which is the moment when you realize that the sacred object that you are pursuing isn't there. Now you don't feel this frenetic pursuit, this trying to always achieve it. And grace is the result, it's the experience, the experience of I don't have to do anything. I don't have to pursue this. I don't have to run forward and try to grasp this. I'm not okay, you're not okay, and that's okay, right? This is like, the, it's, a, it's a putting the brakes on some movement to try to get fullness. And in the Hebrew scriptures, it's called the serpent. In Freudian terms, it's called the superego. But it's that voice that keeps telling you that you have to do something in order to find that wholeness and completeness. Um, this moment of ripping the curtain back is the moment at which you realize that the thing that you're always pursuing, that you think that that uh, will fill the lack, is actually what is making you experience the lack in the first place. So that the very thing that you think will fill the lack is exactly what creates the feeling of lack in the first place. So just like Adam and Eve walking in the garden, happy, content, and then as soon as the prohibition comes in and the serpent says, you've got to transgress that prohibition, then you'll be complete. That's what creates this, the sense of incompleteness that, that generates the drive to get there. So we're talking about forgiveness and grace. And also we're going to talk about joy in the third part of this. So these are three interconnected themes, forgiveness, grace, and joy. Forgiveness is the experience of robbing lack of its sting, not getting rid of the lack, not filling the lack, but robbing it of its sting, rendering the nothingness that is something into the nothingness that is nothing. That's forgiveness. Grace is the experience that comes with that of no longer needing to pursue, to frenetically move, to try to get somewhere, which actually generates its opposite, right? That's the whole Pauline thing, that the more you try to um, get something, the more you try something, the more you sabotage yourself, right? Uh, one clinical example was of a woman who was having a lot of sex with strangers and she felt guilty about it. And uh, she went to an analyst and uh, the analyst, uh, as, as he talked to her, uh, realized she was full of guilt about this. And she was kind of thankful that at least she felt guilty. Right? Because if she didn't feel guilty, maybe she would do it even more, right? She thinks about what would my parents think, what would my community think, and she had this guilt. But as she worked through the guilt and the guilt level dropped, instead of making her then want to go out even more, the desire to go out diminished as well. 
So the very thing that she thought was preventing her from, from having more unsafe relationships uh, was the very thing that was fueling her desire to have those unsafe relationships. So as you brought down the prohibition, you brought down the desire to transgress the prohibition. And that's why love fulfills the law by overturning the law, because the law as the prohibition generates the desire that it attempts to quash. Whereas love in its permissibility uh, is able to actually direct itself against the drive to transgress itself, right? So um, forgiveness and grace, grace is that moment where I don't have to do anything that paradoxically is what allows you to change. Just like in AA, before you do the 12 steps, the first step, the step zero, is being in a room of people who just accept you for who you are, where you can just be honest about your situation, be honest about what's happening, and not have to do anything. And if you haven't experienced that grace, and Paul Tillich defines grace as the acceptance that you're accepted. So it's not just that I accept you, right? You have to feel that acceptance. You have to be able to somehow open yourself to it. But when you accept the acceptance, like in AA, then it's weird because in a, in a way you're accepted for who you are. You don't have to change. You don't have to do anything, right? But that actually is what allows the 12 steps to become effective. If you don't have that first experience of grace in AA, those 12 steps are going to be more like laws. And the more they are like laws, the more you're going to find that you either want to transgress them, you either find yourself always fighting them, or you will get over the alcoholism, but you'll replace it with something else, right? You'll get addicted to Diet Coke or to CrossFit or something like that, right? You'll, you'll find something else, maybe slightly less unhealthy, but, but you, know, you'll, yeah, you won't have broken the back of the, the drive. So um, what I've tried to outline here is what conversion can be understood as. Conversion, freedom from the sacred object, which means rendering the lack a nothing, a nothing that is nothing, that that is experience of grace or forgiveness, which is felt as grace and leads to joy. And joy can be understood as a type of affirmation of life. So we're gonna come back to joy in a second. But in order to understand how this occurs, we've got to understand what this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me means, at least kind of render it into something philosophical, something conceptual. And in order to understand that, I want to talk a little bit about the development of uh, every human being, right, the development of the baby. Um, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, there's two kind of events that are supposed to happen in our development. One is called alienation and the other is called separation. And separation can be also called redoubled alienation. So there's alienation one and then there's alienation times two, <laughs> but alienation separation. And alienation is the experience in which you are uh, not one with your environment and with your primary caregivers, right? It's where you start to feel yourself as um, uh, not connected as as a person I am a subject I am I am an I and not immersed in in the world that was kind of like you know it was never really 
what we wear, but um, it's kind of an experience we have that there was this kind of moment before uh, we were separated from everything, before I became an I, when I was part of, of, of the oceanic oneness. So alienation basically names that. And alienation arises through a type of prohibition, right? And it's called the know of the father and analysis, which is something that comes in, brings an initial gap between you and the primary caregiver that helps you begin to form a self-identity. And it's alienation because you feel, well, you feel alienated. You don't feel kind of, you feel that you've lost something. Um, and you want to overcome that alienation. You want to return to what uh, you're now um, parted from, right? So alienation comes with a sense of loss. It comes with a sense of sadness and it comes with a desire to uh, overcome. Now, the funny thing is um, really the child doesn't want to just that return, right? Because the return itself isn't where all the pleasure is. Uh, Freud saw, um, I think it was his niece, uh, playing a game called Fort Da. I think in German, Fort and Da means something like here and there, something like that. But is it the, basically the game was the child was throwing a spool away and then pulling the spool back. And Freud saw that the child was getting more enjoyment from pulling the spool back and then throwing it away, and then the enjoyment of pulling it back. But it was the throwing away that allowed the pleasure of the pulling back, right? So there's separation and return, separation and return, right? So the child feels this alienation, and they're wanting to experience that closeness again. But then the distance and the closeness can, can generate a certain amount of pleasure, right? But that's alienation. Very, very early on, we feel a certain alienation. And then separation happens. And separation happens when we realize that the one we are alienated from is also alienated from themselves, right? So it's when, right, you're looking at the other and you think that they are perfect and amazing. Like when you look at your parents, maybe when you're very young and you think of them as gods, right? They're all powerful, right? Um, there, and you want to envelop yourself within them. You want to find a little gap within them that you can fill. But they're basically these incredible beings. But there is a moment when you realize you can't uh, kind of be everything to your mother or your father, and they can't be everything to you because they're alienated from themselves. It's not that they just have a small gap where you can fit in and you can make each other whole. It's that your parents are also don't know what they desire and desire multiple things and have other things in their lives. And that moment is quite traumatic. It's actually kind of the moment when you realize your parents are just human beings, right? And not these all powerful people. But again, that is very important for you to be able to leave the family and go off into the world and find someone and, and have your own family. There has to be a kind of break. Now, obviously, at its most kind of like a, a, a kind of obvious example is in adolescence is when the child has to break, right? That's why when parents are going, well, I, I want my kids to not, I, I don't want to do anything wrong like my parents did so that my kids don't have to rebel against me. 
But there's a sense in which your, your kids have to rebel against you because it's the rebellion that's important. It's not, the, uh, it's not that your parents didn't have the right set of beliefs and therefore you had to rebel against them because they were wrong. It's that you had to rebel against them. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's, there's, a, there's a way in which that kind of rebellion and that kind of differentiation needs to occur and where your your children have to see you as weak and silly and dumb right uh which must be very difficult for parents i'm guessing the moment when they see in their children's eyes <laughs> that uh they kind of have derision for their parents. Um, and hopefully that passes relatively quickly, hopefully, and, uh, or it's minimal, but there's still, whether it's derision or whether it's just embarrassment or whether it's uh, whatever, however it manifests itself, it's that moment when the child realizes the not at oneness of you. So I feel not at one with myself, but I fantasize that if I was with you, that would be overcome. And then I realized, no, you're not at one with yourself either. So uh, what unifies us is the fact that we are both divided subjects. Actually, my, what we share is not primarily an identity, right? It's not primarily something on the level of the imaginary, uh, what country we come from, what language we speak, what beliefs we have. What unifies us is that you are a lacking subject like me. Now that manifests itself in different ways, depending on your religion, your, your country, your past, but you're still a, a divided subject like me. And that moment when I realize, if I realize that the other, and primarily the parents at first, are also divided subjects, frees me from this pursuit of wanting to just be with them forever and just be enveloped by them and find a kind of oneness in that kind of family unit. It's what propels us into the world, into the world of disappointments and struggle and also joy. Now, um, this is very important because if you imagine that uh, we feel alienation, the biblical text is about the movement from alienation from the absolute to separation from the absolute which then allows for a third position. So the alienation from the absolute is, I am separate from God, right? And then there's all these different ways in which we manage that separation, that alienation. Um, there's covenants and there's uh, you know, prophets and there's obeying commandments and all of these different ways through the text, we're trying to manage the alienation uh, from God but we're still wanting to somehow close that gap. And within Judaism, interestingly, there's this idea of do not make graven images of God, which can be a way of saying, do not create fantasies, create images um, of, of the other. So what we do is when the, when the child doesn't know how to satisfy the desire of the other, they create fantasies about how that can be fulfilled. So fantasy begins as a way of trying to work out how am I desirable to the other? What will make me desirable to the other, right? So in a way, there's always that temptation to um, try to fill the gap, fill it with a fantasy of, of how to be full and one and one with the other. And there's already this commandment to avoid doing that, right? Then you have within the crucifixion, and I think this happens within Judaism as well, but we're going to go to the crucifixion. 
is you have the experience of the alienation of God, the moment when you see God alienated from God's self, not simply that I am alienated from God, but God is alienated from God. And that, in psychoanalytic terms, is separation. It's the moment in which you go, oh, the thing that I want, that's absolute, the perfection, it's divided itself, right? I mean, a silly example might be, you want certain possessions, you want a yacht or this particular house, a particular lifestyle. And you're looking at that lifestyle and you're alienated from it. You don't have it and you would like it. But then maybe you get to spend some time with people who are very rich and have that lifestyle and you get to experience it from within. And then you see that it's just as divided as everything else, right? It's not, once you're inside it, you realize that it's, you're, you're now not distant from it, you're now experiencing its own distance from itself. It's, it doesn't live up to its own fantasy. It's a divided subject. And then that can be the thing that frees you from the desire. You go, oh right, well that doesn't work, right? Um, but it's not that you're alienated from it, it's alienated from itself. And so this is why I think it's important that the very moment at which we experience a self-alienated God is the moment when the temple curtain opens, splits, because psychoanalytically, that's exactly what happens. The moment when you see the other as divided, the, the thing that you want more than anything uh, is the moment when you can be freed from, existentially freed from this frenetic desire for completeness. It, that's the way to move from the lack of the secret to the secret of the lack. Right? One other example might be um, kind of those noir uh, detective movies where the femme fatale is this figure who is, for the protagonist, kind of the, the one they're alienated from, this, this woman who seems so beautiful and perfect and incredible, and they are so drawn to the femme fatale that they will commit crimes, right? In the moments that the detective is freed from the, 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 the seductive pull of the femme fatale is not because they're, they're alienated from her and they're like, oh, I could never have her. That's the very thing that makes them want her. The fact that she is always elusive, always impossible to get, always at a distance, that, that alienation is the very thing that keeps them in like a tractor beam, kind of intensely drawn to them. It's the moment when the femme fatale is revealed to be self-alienated, when she loses her cool, when she is seen as actually um, uh, full of conflictual emotions and desires. So that moment when she breaks down at the end of the film and the detective sees her in this self-divided way and then basically the, the freedom for the protagonist arrives, right? And uh, that's, that's called you know, redoubled alienation because it's not, you know, the way we think about it in religion, the way, what religion does is it tries to say the solution to alienation is return. The secret, the secret to overcoming alienation is to get unity, to get oneness. Whereas this uh, parotheology is saying the way to overcome alienation is to redouble alienation into separation. So it's the other way, it's the dialectic opposite, right? Instead of trying to close the gap, you redouble it. And this can also be called redoubled kenosis. So kenosis is this idea of emptying that's central to theology, so the emptying of God into nothingness. And then redoubled kenosis is, can be called the kind of where God experiences the emptiness within God. 
And it's this redoubled kenosis that brings reconciliation, right? Uh, Hegel calls reconciliation the reconciliation of unity and difference. So reconciliation doesn't bring us to a unity, a oneness. It's what reconciles us to a type of lack, where lack becomes part of the one. And uh, that's, that's where we're, we're driving towards. So, sorry, part one of this seminar, I've simply outlined this notion of forgiveness and grace, the crucifixion as being the moment at which we realize the sacred object doesn't exist and we are freed from this frenetic pursuit. Then I've connected in this second part to this notion of alienation and separation, that this happens uh, whenever we see that whatever the sacred object is, is also divided, right? There is nothing undivided. And last, in part two, uh, the last part, we looked at how there's contradiction and deadlock hard-baked into reality. So that's the experience of it, of like reality itself is, is not undivided. Reality itself is divided, right? So it's that experience. And in Christianity, we identify with Christ and then in that identity we experience Christ experiencing that self-alienation and so we experience it within ourselves. We're going to look at that in more depth in part five. So in part five I'm going to look at how that happens but just for now I'll, I'll say it again. It's that we identify with the absolute so what we do is we want to say we want to be like God. We identify with God and then God through kenosis becomes human. So we have to identify with humanity and then through redoubled kenosis experiences self-alienation. And so we're brought to experience our own self-alienation. So the very thing that we were trying to get away from, we've been brought back to. The, uh, the, the liturgical structure, the, the, the theology has kind of, we've brought us back to ourselves uh, and brought us back to what we were repressing or disavowing in our lives, which is our own self-alienation. Because when we're confronted with a self-alienation of the other, we are confronted with a radical type of self-alienation that can never be overcome. And this will lead us then into next week, the Epoch of the Holy Ghost. So now part three, um, and this will help to explain why I call this an absurd cross or impossible cross. Because what you'll see, um, well, you might not be able to see this too clearly, but it's, uh, the, the cross is, is a three-dimensional object that actually uh, would be impossible to render uh, in a three-dimensional way because the bars of the cross uh, interweave in an impossible way. If you, if you look at impossible objects, like uh, there's a famous one of a table, but the table, the, the legs are kind of, it's like an optical illusion. It looks like a table, but the table, the legs are, um, kind of impossible, you could never build a table in real life. So it's an impossible object in that way. And the reason why it's an impossible object is the final thing I wanna talk about with the cross is that the cross bring, brings together um, extremes. It's absurdist. So whenever Tertullian says, I believe in the crucifixion of Christ precisely because it is absurd, um, one way of understanding this is by thinking about what Camus meant by the absurd. The absurd is not like a square triangle, but the absurd for Camus is we are, are, are meaning-desiring beings, but we encounter a universe that seems to resist giving us meaning. And that experience is the absurd. The absurd is kind of the explosion of 
of the affect from a contradiction. We want meaning, the universe resists meaning, the absurd as we live in that space between those two. Uh, in a way, the, the cross is a type of absurdity because of course it's God, the infinite, uh, becoming finite. It's the, the unkillable, the thing that can never come out of existence being, being killed. It's the highest being destroyed by the lowest. There's all these weird contradictions that are within the cross. So when you wear a cross, you're wearing a kind of symbol of, of, of contradiction. It's something that Kierkegaard really understood. So it's a very weird symbol. Even in the, in the day, it would have been bizarre. You know, it was a very bizarre symbol. Um, but fundamentally, it brings together two very interesting things. Um, and to understand what they are, very briefly, I want to talk about the reality principle and the pleasure principle. So the reality principle is just that principle, or sorry, pleasure principle. We'll start there. The pleasure principle is the, basically the principle in which we want to find pleasure. We want to have a pleasurable life. And right from the beginning, we want food if we're hungry, we want to sleep if we're tired, we want something around us if we're cold, etc., etc. So the pleasure principle very simply is the principle which kind of the rule by which we try to find pleasure. And then the reality principle is what gets in the way. The reality principle is uh, the things that stop us. So I might want to eat anything that I want to eat, climb every tree that I come across and win every game that I play, right? But your parents won't let you eat whatever you want. Uh, your body won't let you climb every tree and your friends won't let you win every game. So there's pleasure principle hitting against reality principle. And at first we think that if only we could get rid of the reality principle and get what we want, then we would be happy, right? But Freud you know, understood that actually it's the reality principle that makes things pleasurable. If you took away the reality principle and got everything you wanted immediately, you would actually take away the pleasure. The pleasure would be gone. If you could climb Everest in a, just by imagining that, and you could uh, uh, have anything you wanted at any moment, exactly when you want, this would be a type of hell, right? So for Freud then, weirdly, we're caught between the reality principle and the pleasure principle. The reality principle stops us from getting what we want, and yet it generates the want in its precise prevention of us getting what we want. And the pleasure principle only gains its real power through the reality principle. And this kind of contradiction, this absurdity that we live within, um, generates excessive desire. So this is where we get into the notion of drive, which I looked at in part two. This drive for something that we really want, that we really want to pursue. Now, there's religions of the reality principle and there's religions of the pleasure principle. Religions of the pleasure principle are religions that say you can have what you want, either in this life or the next life. There's sec uh, sacred versions of that and there's secular versions of that, right? But anyone that promises you can have the pleasure, you can have the happiness, right? That's, that, those are religions of the pleasure principle. And then religions of the reality principle are religions that say we can help you get rid of your desire to desire nothing to free yourself from the, 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 the cycle of desire and loss, right? 
and you find versions of those everywhere. In fact, they're very interconnected that you'll find that they work very well together. So someone will go to on their meditation retreat on a Thursday night and on a Saturday so that they can enter their uh, work in the bank uh, in, uh, on the Monday, right? So weirdly kind of you're, you're finding a way to uh, let go of your desire uh, on Thursday nights and Saturday mornings and then so that you can not be overcome by your desire uh, on the other days. And that's a good example of someone keeping reality principle and pleasure principle in check. But uh, th those both will fail. And I think it can be obvious the way I've described that there's neither religions of the pleasure principle or the reality principle can work, or religions of basically hedonism or religions of nihilism. They don't work. But what we need is a religion of the absurd. And a religion of the absurd is what helps you actively embrace the conflict between the reality principle and the pleasure principle to help you actually enjoy that struggle without either thinking there's something that can be gotten on the other side of the reality principle or, or that we have to really the sacred object is the loss of everything and the, the shutting down of desire. This is somehow how do you keep your desire alive? How do you embrace lack? How, keeping desire going without it becoming destructive, right? Without it having a sting. This is the religion of the absurd. This is why the cross looks like this. And the reason why I think the crucifixion leads us into the notion of a religion of the absurd is because, and uh, I want to introduce one more terminology here, um, uh, the object of desire and the object cause of desire. The object of desire is what you want and the object cause of desire is what makes you want it. Right? And the object cause of desire is basically you know, very close to the reality principle and the object of desire is connected to the pleasure principle. So maybe you want a new house. That is the object of your desire. But actually you really love looking on the websites, uh, looking at different houses, going and visiting houses, saving up, thinking about what you would do with the kitchen, where you would put things, right? And that is the object cause of desire, right? Because the fact that you can't get the house yet, you're having to look for it, you're having to think about it, you're having to save up money, right? That's the obstacle that's stopping you from getting the house. But when you get the house, you might find yourself with the object of desire, but without the ability to desire the object. Because the object cause of desire, which was the websites, the pursuit, the looking is gone. So you're left with the object of desire, but not the object cause of desire. So sometimes that's why when we finally get the thing we really want, we don't want it. Because in the very success of getting the object of desire, we've lost the object cause of desire that was actually fueling things. So, um, and the object cause of desire is connected with what's called object A, object putia, which is this uh, a name for um, a type of uh, a type of object, a small object that, that generates our desire, that gets us desiring, object putia. And um, I think I talked about that in part one. Uh, so what's that got to do with the crucifixion? Well, the object of desire in Christianity is God, and the object cause of desire or the object that gets in the way of God is Christ, right? We have to crucify Christ, get rid of Christ to get back to God. That's what's happening within the text, right? You know, Jesus is the problem, get rid of Christ, get back to God. 
And yet, of course, the idea is actually the thing that is in the way of getting back to God is God, right? So the object cause of desire is the object of desire. So it links together the object cause of desire with the object of desire. The thing that we think we have to get over to get to God is where God is situated. This is key to conversion. You see it in Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's converted when he is basically uh, persecuting a group of people called the Christians. And he thinks if only we could get rid of them, we can get back to Judaism proper. They are basically the problem. They are threatening to undermine the true religion. And then he hears the voice of God saying, why are you persecuting me? Which means that he sees in the, in the obstacle to what he wants is what he wants. The obstacle to God is where God is. And that's his conversion, right? His moment of realizing that the object cause of desire uh, is the object of desire. And that sets him on his vocation to create a community uh, of all, of neither nor, a community where we all experience ourselves as divided subjects, right? Um, so this is br the breaking of the scapegoat mechanism, where we realize that, uh, you know, the, the th even if you think about it in terms of, uh, doing kind of good works. We often think that if we go to visit prisoners in, in prison, we are good news to them, right? The obstacle is the prison system and we want to get rid of the prison system in order to kind of get to a better society. Or with the homeless, the homeless are the obstacle and we want to kind of get rid of the homeless uh, homelessness in order to have a better society. Um, or it can be we want to get rid of Democrats or Republicans or whatever it is, some group that we want to get rid of in some way. But actually, in terms of, um, in terms of uh, uh, doing good works, um, it's more that the prisoners are good news to us, not that we're good news to them. The, the prison population is not a problem. It's the solution to a problem. They show some problem within our society, and the solution to that problem is to put more and more people in prison. Homelessness is not the problem, it's the solution to a problem that's within our society. Maybe it's to do with mental health provision, maybe it's to do with underemployment, maybe it's to do with kind of like a, it, all sorts of things, modern life, right? And the solution to it is to have a homeless population that kind of like can be managed and moved around. And it's just like alcoholism isn't the problem as such, it's the solution to a problem. So it's, a, it's an attempt by the person to self-heal. is an attempt by the person to find a solution to a problem. It's a solution that causes more problems in the end, but it is, if you don't realize that it's, it's the attempt of the person to self-heal in some way, then you'll never get to the root of it and be able to really change it. And it's only when you listen to the other and kind of ask yourself, why is the prison population there in the way it is? Why is there such a problem with homelessness? You begin, and then you begin to go, oh, that's because I'm part of some society in which there are issues that I have to change in my life. And then, so we're called to repent through the other. It's only as we do that, that we can begin to see real change. Now, the reason why I say all of that is, again, you see the logic is that the very thing that you think you have to get rid of in order to get to God is where God is. And, and it's actually in opening yourself up to that, that real change happens. And this means, if you remember from part two, this means seeing uh, the contradiction beneath opposition and the lack within loss. So it means 
um, instead of us constantly trying to get rid of something to get to something perfect, realizing that most of the problems that we see in our society are attempts to avoid confronting the, uh, the, the lack that is part of life. It's the, it's the fleeing from that that is the problem. Um, not, it's not the lack that's the problem, it's the fleeing from it, the not looking at it. And so what we do is we then create all of these problems within our society as a result of that. Um, uh, so again, I think that will connect with part one and part two, what we've looked at. Now, the reason why I'm saying all of this is that in the crucifixion, you see that the thing that you think is in the way is actually the thing that you're desiring. Is because what that means is you discover a type of joy in the obstacle. You find what you're looking for. You're seeking something and then you're not realizing that the very seeking is the finding. So this is the, maybe this is the big takeaway from this part is that it's, there's a Bible verse that says, seeking you shall find, knocking the door shall be opened. Um, uh, seeking you shall find, uh, ask it will be given, knocking the door will be opened, right? Now, when we read that, it sounds like it's like seek and then at some point in the future you will find. And that's our normal way of thinking about things. When I seek something, eventually I'll find it. If I lose my keys and I look long enough, I'll find them, right? But this is not what the verse is saying. The verse is better translated as seek and find. Knock, doors opened. Uh, ask, you receive. In other words, it's like heat and light. There's no temporal distinction between the two. There's no spatial dimension between the two. The two are completely interwoven. The seeking is the finding. The knocking is the door being opened. The asking is the receiving, which means that, that in seeking the object and being constantly not being able to get it, that seeking, that heartfelt seeking is the evidence that you are within the sacred, not as an object, but as a depth dimension in the seeking itself. This opens up what is called joy, right? Enjoyment, and joy is connected to not having. It's the pleasure you receive from not having, uh, right? So pleasure, think of pleasure as the enjoyment you get. Uh, let's say, these words are so interchangeable, it's difficult, so hold on. As you've got enjoyment, and, uh, and pleasure, right? Pleasure is the positive experience you get from something, right? You get something you want and it feels good. At Christmas day, you open up a present, it's what you want, that's great. Enjoyment is the, is the, is the um, uh, positive feeling you get from the waiting from the not having, from the looking forward to, right? So whenever a kid is waiting for Christmas, you can see them getting something from the waiting. And actually that's often much more powerful than the getting, right? So there's enjoyment and there's pleasure. And enjoyment, we're talking about joy, the joy and enjoyment, is a type of affirmation of life that comes from not having. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this when he talks about surprised by joy. Joy for him is the sense of an aroma of a, of a heaven that, that he is not in. So it is a pleasure that he is getting from not having. Right. And so what we see in this notion of the object and the object cause of desire being in the one location wrapped impossibly together, that's the absurd. Right? And 
Uh, one example of how this looks in an unhealthy way and then in a healthier way is if you take a couple, and uh, you see this all the time, but we we'll call them Jack and Jill, and they've been married for 10 years and the desire is out of the relationship. You know, they still hang out, but there's no real desire. And then Jack starts having an affair with Snow White. And so they're having an affair and eventually it's found out. And he's always saying to Snow White, oh, if only I wasn't married to Jill, that we could be together, everything would be wonderful. But when Jill finds out, she says, okay, you can be with Snow White, you know, leave the house. And he's like, yeah, fine. We don't really have a relationship anyway. I'm going to leave, right? But the moment that the prohibition is taken away and he can be with Snow White and there's no one stopping him, he's like, oh my goodness, I don't want to be with her, right? The desire to be with her was being generated by the fact that he couldn't be with her. And now that he's free to go, he doesn't want to go. And then for the woman, she starts to... Um, desire her husband precisely because something's threatening to take him away, right? So something's getting in the way that threatens to, to take him away. So I'm thinking about some people in particular I know who this has happened numerous times in their relationship, not once. Like if you were an alien from outer space and you saw that, you'd go, oh right, well, Jack and Jill are going to split up and Jack's going to go out with Snow White, obviously. But very rarely does that happen, right? And if it does happen, it often falls apart because what's not being understood is for Jack as a type of obsessive he desires what he cannot have and uh, Jill as a type of uh, hysteric uh, can't enjoy without the threat of that being taken away what she has being taken away and so the way that they keep their desire going is precisely in this unhealthy way so that couple then end up being back together again everything's wonderful they go off on a second honeymoon until it happens again but that's an attempt to have the object of desire and the object cause of desire operating. But it's operating, they're not together, they're not tied in together. For that couple, when they are able to tie those two things together in some way, that there is a certain kind of lack within their relationship that they can embrace, and they find ways of bringing lack into their relationship in terms of going away on adventures together, or finding different ways to be apart sometimes, or whatever way they work it out, where they can bring the object of desire and the object cause of desire together, they enter into enjoyment. And enjoyment is that affirmation that comes from not, a type of not having, with moments of having, but, that, but the, the not having is, is integrated into the very relationship itself. And that is kind of connected to the crucifixion, right? So in this seminar, I've looked at forgiveness, grace, and joy. Forgiveness is the freedom from the sacred object, which is the ripping of the curtain, the realization that that, that thing is not there, it doesn't exist. That happens through the self-alienation of the absolute, the kind of experience that the thing that you want more than anything is itself divided, right? So that frees you from that. That's an experience of grace, because now you don't have to do anything, you don't have to frantically pursue anything. And yet that experience of grace leads to joy, which is then a type of affirmation of life in just the everyday struggles. Not this kind of pursuit of some absolute, but rather in the act of love and engagement of life and the struggles of existence brings joy. So that Hopefully we'll see, you'll see how to, we're connecting the idea of the sacred object and the idea of the, the secret of the lack with this notion of uh, the crucifixion. And next week, we're going to look at 
uh, what a community looks like who embrace this, uh, what can be called the Epoch of the Holy Ghost or uh, the Epoch of the Happy Reaper, <laughs> which is uh, on the other side of the coin. So I'm just going to look to see if there's any questions and uh, take it from there. Let's see. Uh, so Kate asks, is the something that is nothing versus the something uh, only differentiated by the significance I assign to it? So if I start obsessing over nothing before birth, uh, it becomes something that is something to me. Yes, so um, yeah, it, it's what you assign. Um, so for, for one person not talking to their partner, uh, even if it's two people together and one of them's just not talking because just they're not talking and the other person isn't talking because they're not talking. Um, I guess, yeah, it's, it's about something about it's how, what we assign. Um, the, I guess if I get your question right, the thing I'm kind of saying is that we are all predisposed to experiencing a type of God-shaped, what Pascal calls the God-shaped hole. Um, it's a, a type of lack. But yes, what that is to us is completely contingent on a whole type of range of factors and uh, can kind of come by anything. That's why people can get obsessed with collecting stamps, right? The universal addiction, it's kind of so pointless that it kind of is the stand-in for all addictions. Uh, so yeah, it can be an obsession with collecting certain magazines or illness or anything at all. Yeah. Uh, Rob asks, is the moment of separation related to symbolic castration? So right, let me get this right. So symbolic castration is in a way where you are able to realize your lack. Um, uh, so is that connected to separation? Um, I'm just kind of connecting the two together. So symbolic castration is the moment and is the, is the experience of coming to terms with our own lack in a symbolic way, in language, you know, kind of com coming to terms with that. Um, Yes, pretty much because if symbolic castration doesn't hold, we're just talking about psychoanalysis for a minute, if symbolic castration doesn't take hold, then you uh, basically are entering into a kind of perverse relationship with the world. And a perverse relationship with the world, according to Bruce Fink, is a relationship with the world in which you still believe the other is undivided, right? You can be everything to the other or the other can be everything to you because the symbolic castration hasn't kind of taken hold. So yeah, I think you're right, um, is that this idea of symbolic castration is very connected to the moment at which we are able to, in our subjective individual lives, kind of come to terms with a type of lack. And then what I'm doing, by the way, is I'm using this stuff to talk about how we have to do this as a community in terms of reality and how we can create churches in which we live this out um, and then potentially we can find a way to have societies that, that live this out. So symbolic castration, what happens at an individual level in some respects has to happen um, at a kind of a societal level. Uh, Shema says, the, oh yeah, Shema says, with the idea of conversion or transformation being based in the intellectual capacity of coming to see our drives, desires, etc., and perpetuating our separation and lack, but what of the sign of 
of uh, Jonah as the only sign given to bring the subject to the idea of conversion wholeness? Uh, that sounds like a good question. I'm not sure what the sign of Jonah is. It's been a long time since I've read the story of Jonah. Are you talking about the signs that he was given to go to, is it Nineveh, to preach? I'm not, so I'm not sure, but I'm, let me see if I can say anything to the question. With the idea of conversion, transformation being based on in the intellectual capacity. By the way, I want to just mention, I'm probably making it sound like an intellectual capacity, but I want to say in no way is it an intellectual capacity. What we're doing here is obviously intellectual, but for me, conversion is the experience of it that's open to anybody. It's not, um, it's not an intellectual kind of confrontation. It's uh, you know, an existential confrontation that actually um, you know, uh, maybe the intellectual life gets in the way of it a little bit. Um, but yes, because I don't know what the sign of Jonah is, I'm going to have to skip your question. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, Kate says, has confessional Christianity misinterpreted this as there is an acceptance of the moment of separation, but it is nullified at the resurrection where God becomes whole and complete again? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th this is the difference between, I think, confessional Christianity and radical Christianity. Um, confessional Christianity, ultimately, uh, any notion of separation is either a game Right, it's not real, it's just played out for us, right? God is never self-divided, the absolute is not self-divided. Um, or it's a momentary kind of rupture that gets fixed, gets, gets filled in. So it's not the forgiveness of debt, it's the payment of debt. Um, and I think that's, that's I, I at the moment, and for the last while, I think that that is the main difference between like what some something like parotheology as a radical theology is doing and what confessional theology is doing. Confessional theology, wants to uh, fill the lack and, and, and reinscribe it as loss and purely a loss that can be that can be refined and uh, paratheology wants to redouble the alienation and go that direction not in order to lose the absolute but to experience a very different type of absolute which is what we're going to look at yeah in the next part Oh, Kit says, and in, oh yeah, uh, and in comparison, what is oh yeah, in comparison, what is the power of theological understanding of the resurrection? Yeah, so I kind of hinted at it today, in in that notion of the bringing together of the object of desire and object cause of desire. In that, for me, resurrection is the return of the sacred, but it's the return of the sacred not as an object that we love, but as the depth dimension uh, that we experience in the act of love itself. And the reason why I was hinting at it today is because it's in the crucifixion itself. Is, is that, this is why it's not nihilism, it's ultimately joy or joyful nihilism. Um, it's joy in that, that you lose the sacred as an object, but the, but the sacred returns, the absolute returns as that which is in um, uh, struggle and contradiction and lack. And so the God returns where two or three are gathered together in love. And that, I think, is the, is the resurrection God, is where two or three are gathered together, there God is. Um, and even that, the, the road to Emmaus, is it where as soon as you know, Jesus is recognized by the disciples, Jesus disappears, right? There's a certain kind of like uh, virtual nature to kind of the resurrection. So yeah, so resurrection for me is not a, a return to an undivided absolute, but rather the, the community that lives in joy, uh, in love, 
And in that discovers what, what Bonhoeffer called religionless Christianity um, uh, or a divided absolute. Um, and that's, yeah, and that's, that's the big difference. That's the big difference. Uh, yeah, I, that the way I see it. Uh, Nathan says, do you see this as an orthodox view of Christian theology? Has the historic church seen the cross this way? Yeah, you know, Nathan, that's a good question. Um, uh, and I would actually love more people who are church historians and religious historians to kind of go into this because I do think that there are elements of this kind of thing throughout. So it's not that it's been discovered for the first time in Hegel or in Altizer or whatever. There's definitely, you can see this in people like Eckhart and you can see it within the biblical text itself. And uh, But, uh, you know, the question is to what extent um, is this, has, is, has this been seen within say a confessional system? And um, I would say it's, it's, this is always the, I mean, well, John Caputo says it like this. He, he thinks radical theology isn't something. It's what haunts confessional theology. So my, my analogy is, is like a, the warning on the pack of cigarettes, right? The warning um, is, uh, without the warning, the cigarettes, they can do a lot of damage, right? Smoke, it'll kill you, right? But, but the cigarettes without the warning are dangerous, but the warning without the cigarettes is superfluous. And uh, I used to think of this in terms of icon. Icon was like the warning of religion, but without religion, icon was pointless. Um, but with, without, without icon, religion could be dangerous, but without religion, icon would be pointless. Um, that's John Caputo's analogy for radical theology. Radical theology isn't a thing. It's what haunts and disturbs and decenters continually. So in other words, bringing the lack, doubt, unknowing complexity in. But what I'm doing with parotheology is I'm positivizing it. So I'm kind of making two claims. One is theology is always dialectic. So that, that can be said, right? right? Theology is a, is a conversation that's been going on for thousands of years and often in a very passionate and heated way. And it's been developing and changing and deepening and that, that's the dialectic. And in one way, I want to be faithful to the dialectic and go, right, we never close things down. But I'm also faithful to history, which means that in any historical moment, there are positions, the ways that dialectic shapes and takes form, healthier and unhealthier ways, and those are temporal. And so for me, parotheology is a way of looking at how this looks concretely today that hopefully has got um, fidelity to the past, but also um, is, is uh, you know, reinscribing some of those symbols, just as what every Reformation does that, it's kind of reinscribes these ideas. Like there's so many atonement theories, etc. But also that parotheology as an historical phenomenon will, even if it was successful, even if this kind of works and we're doing this for the next few hundred years, eventually it will be overturned. But what remains eternal is the dialectic. So I don't think I'm qualified to answer the question, but every now and again, I meet church historians. It's happened a couple of times and I've said like, is this stuff like completely kind of off kilter? And they have said to me, no, no, like you can find certain threads of this within the, 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 the history of church thought, but I haven't seen anybody actually do a dissertation on it yet. So um, if there's anybody who wants to go out there and actually look at this question, um, but it definitely, Hegel's very important. And Hegel saw himself as Lutheran and Luther saw himself as 
you know, uh, faithful to Paul and Paul to Christ. So if you want to see the, the, tr the track of this, it's uh, Jesus to Paul, to Luther, to Hegel, and then into, into kind of Altizer and then into kind of stuff like this. Yeah. All right, listen, thank you so much for sticking with me again. Um, and I'll see you for part four, where we're going to be looking at the epoch of the happy reaper. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.